it used to be a good place to be, to practice your skills and to maybe save up a little money before you move somewhere else to make films. But I think it's very expensive now. I don't think Austin is a good city anymore for artists. I think in order to be here, you have to be super competitive and you have to be a business person more so than an artist. And I've, I spend more of my time making corporate films than, than films. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge. What's up, everyone? Thanks a lot for joining the latest episode of the Cover Charge podcast. This week's guest is David Blue Garcia. David, what's up? Uh, thanks for uh, using all three names. I appreciate that. I was going to ask you about that. There's uh, too many David Garcias in the world. It's like the two most common names, um, the most common surname, you know, in Spanish, and then the most common other name. So I have to distinguish myself with the blue. Is that your real middle name, or it's, did you just throw that in there? It's my real middle name. It's from it's my mom's maiden name. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, do you ever just sign like DBG? Yes, DBG. Okay. That's something uh, I use as well. Nice. A lot of people call me DBG. Oh, they do? Mm-hmm. All right. Can I call you DBG? Yeah, you can call me DBG or Dibbage. Dibbage. <laughs> All right. Which was popular Dibbage. back in film school. Um, yeah, so Dibbage, the reason why I brought you on is because you are a filmmaker here in Austin. Your first feature-length film, Tejano, I watched it last night. It's distributed on HBO and other places. Uh, it's a really interesting film that was actually filmed here in Texas, South Te- Texas specifically. And I'm just really curious about the process of creating that film, the business side of creating that film, and then also you know, the, the business of video production, film production in Texas and your experience with that. So we're going to touch upon quite a few of those topics. Uh, you look excited, so we'll just dive in here. Um, first of all, did you grow up here in Austin? So I actually grew up in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, where we filmed Tejano. And uh, that's kind of why I made the movie down there. I wanted to use the resources that I had. Um, My parents lived there for a long time. They've recently moved up closer to Austin and to Buda about a year ago. But when we made the film, they were living down there. So I had a place to stay. I had a lot of family friends down there, um, people I went to high school with. So I had, you know, a 17 year history with the Valley and I wanted to put that on film. Got it. And you wrote the script, right? It, I saw the screenplay was by Kyle Bogart, a guy who I used to work with. Uh, but you, it said the story was by you. Explain the difference there. Well, um, so I basically had um, this idea. And I had a lot of iterations of how to tell that story. But the central idea was that a guy gets his arm broken, put in a cast made of cocaine, and is forced to smuggle drugs. And my original iteration of the script that no one has ever read, including Kyle, well, it started actually in South America, and it was based on some of my travels in Ecuador in 2007. Uh, and then the story continued and you know, came back to Texas. Um, but then one of my friends, um, one of my filmmaking friends, set, kind of heard about my idea and said, well, why don't you just set the movie in South Texas and just have it about a guy smuggling drugs across the border? And that really opened my eyes because that was going to be a lot easier to produce something that was more achievable 
for me. Um, and in 2011, I, I sat down and tried to write a version of the screenplay. And I'm kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm a trained uh, cinematographer. That's what I kind of do for a living. I was also directing a lot of, you know, small commercials and web content and stuff like that. So I think my, my principal sk- skills have always been on set and telling stories visually and, and knowing how to take a script and make it good. But I had never tackled script writing at, on, on its own. And it's a lot harder than it looks. And so I basically failed. I failed to write a screenplay in a month. Um, and I kind of gave up for a minute. And then I remembered Kyle, Kyle Bogart, a good friend of mine from film school, somebody who I had shot a feature film for. I shot his... We got a little bit of a... Is that me? That's you, dude. Class... Oh, speak of the devil. Is that Kyle? No, actually, but it's another friend I just mentioned. So I had a history with Kyle. I knew he was a great writer. I knew he was already trained, you know? So I told him about my idea. I remember we were at a karaoke bar and maybe a little drunk. And I told him about my idea for this story and he thought it was good. And I propositioned him. I said, hey, why don't we work together on this? And why don't we work out a deal where you write the draft? And a couple months later, we had a first draft. Okay. That's, let's dial it back just a little bit. Um, you grew up in South Texas. Did you go to UT film school? Yeah, I grew up in South Texas and then went to University of Texas film school. Okay. And describe your upbringing there. Um, how did you hone your craft as a filmmaker or did that not really happen until you went to film school? Um, I started, I, I became interested in filmmaking from a young age. Um, I was one of those kids that every time I went to the movies, I had a new career path, something that I wanted to do. You know, when I saw the abyss, I wanted to be an oceanographer and a marine biologist. And when I saw Jurassic Park, I wanted to be an art, you know, paleontologist, all, all the typical stuff. And I thought, well, what are the, what is what really going on here? Oh, I just love movies. And I discovered my dad's VHS camera and I started pulling it out and making skateboarding films with my friends. And then eventually we dropped the skateboards and just started telling stories and making short films. And I just kind of became obsessed with it um, in high school. What did your parents do for work? Um, my dad taught, uh, he was a professor at a community college and he taught electronics and my mother worked at a hospital as an EEG technician. Okay. Were they really encouraging of you pursuing film and were they cultivating that passion within you or were they like trying to push you in a different direction? You know, my parents are, um, they're more traditional in the sense that they would have probably preferred me to go to a more traditional career path with a known, um, a known end, you know, like getting hired by a company and and having a good job, but they weren't discouraging at all. I think they did encourage me and they supported me. And when I chose to go to film school, they supported me and helped me do that. Got it. What was it always UT in your mind for film school or did you have other ideas in mind or did you, was part of you like, maybe I should just go start making films instead of going to film school? Well, I mean, this was, you know, 2002, 2003, you know, I graduated high school in 2003. I was in South Texas, you know, in Harlingen. There's, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, I couldn't go to the library and even find a book on it. I just knew I wanted to do it. So, and I couldn't go on the internet and really find any information on it either. 
but I talked to some high school counselors and they, they told me about the film school thing. Um, and it didn't look like I could afford to go film school out of state. And so for my research, the university of Texas had the best film school in the state of Texas. And that just became where I wanted to go. When you arrived in Austin, was it immediately like, man, I'm this, this feels like home. Like I love this place or was it a culture shock? It was a huge culture shock. Um, I was, a I was a small town kid kind of with a small town outlook, you know, and I had never seen buildings so big as here in Austin, downtown Austin. I had never been around so many other talented, smart people. I mean, no offense to my high school, but it's just a smaller pool of people. And then when you come to the university of Texas and you're in the dorm, like literally everyone across the hall got like a 1500 on their SATs and was like valedictorian of their class and, you know, super talented in whatever they're doing. And so I had never been surrounded by so many ambitious people and ambitious minds. And that's, but I think that's the great thing about college um, is that you, you get to meet a lot of people with varying interests and, and learn from them. Yeah. I think, I think that, is um that's a great point and I think about that a lot now because certain colleges are like hey we're only going to go remote only right now because of the coronavirus and there's a lot of college students who are paying going to pay the same tuition but they're going to be taking all their classes online and they're going to miss out on exactly what you just said and I wonder how that's going to impact people um you know hopefully it's only for like a semester but mm-hmm. if if this happens for like you know a year um maybe some people will be like, it's, it could totally crush the educational system, right? Yeah, it could. I mean, the crazy thing about college is is the things that you can't predict. I remember standing in line to get my photo ID and becoming really good friends with two of the people who were in line next to me. And they were like my good friends for like eight years after that, you know? Yeah. Crazy. But describe how you met Kyle Bogart. Um, and this is for all the people that know Kyle. Uh, and I know him, so that's why I'm curious about it. But he's a... He's a unique character. I can't remember the first time I laid eyes on him, but I I have an idea that we were in a film class together, probably the intro film class, Intro to Image and Sound, RTF 318. And I think he was one of the guys that just was, you know, very vocal in the class. And, you know, it's a huge class. There are maybe 100 people in there. And he was the guy in the back who would raise his hand and have a very lengthy retort where he was almost teaching the professor about something. And I would, I remember just like thinking, Oh, is this guy going to keep talking and just craning my neck around and looking and seeing who it was? You know, I think that was Kyle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But then later on we, uh, you know, we were in a film, a few film classes together. So we would work together in labs. Um, and I remember being, you know, impressed with his ability to describe what he wanted. Uh, he described one of the assignments was to describe a short film that you were going to direct. And I really loved his kind of visual style and his humor. And then later I was um, approached by a producer who was producing one of Kyle's short films, um, Room 314, um, to do his storyboards for him. So I, I drew some storyboards for Kyle. Got it. And um, you know, Kyle, from my perspective, he like pushed all his chips into the middle and, and left Austin recently to go to LA to pursue film, um, which I thought was a bold move. And, you know, I sent him an email and Kyle, please respond to that email. 
you haven't responded yet if you're listening, but anyways, He's big time. He doesn't yeah, have time, time over there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what was your impression of that when he, when he told you he was heading out to LA? Uh, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, say that I'm influencing him at all, but I mean, I told him to do that 10 years ago. Really? Yeah. yeah. Why did you tell him to do that? But you haven't done it yourself. Well, <laughs> that's because when I told him to do it, he didn't have a job. Uh, he didn't, uh, he wasn't working at flow sports. He didn't really have a lot going on in Austin, um, at the time. And he's been very successful since, but, uh, yeah, I was, you know, I was encouraging, like he was, I think a talented writer, even then, I think, I think that his path would have been great if he had gone to LA and pursued that immediately. And maybe he'd be, you know, in writer's rooms and, and writing and directing films, um, bigger films now, which was my thought. Um, the reason I haven't gone is because I was comfortable here in Austin and I had a little bit of a career going in, in corporate video and commercials and, and wanted to, um, to use that to, to make my own films. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different path. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's get into Tejano, the creative side of mm-hmm. it. I watched it last night, really enjoyed the film. Um, for anyone listening to this podcast right now, if you have not seen the film, um, pause the podcast and watch it and then come back to it. Cause there's going to be some spoiler alerts. Um, and if you have seen it, hopefully I'm asking the questions that you're curious about as well. Um, Describe the, the genre of the film and also like a brief summary. It's been so long. I, uh, I used to answer this question all the time. Um, yeah, Tejano is a, an action thriller um, set in South Texas about a young man named Javi who lives with his grandfather Arturo. And they're both farmhands on a small farm. And um, Arturo gets sick and Javi feels like the only thing he can do is some desperate move, some terrible drug deal that ends up going bad. Now he feels like he's even, even in more hot water. So he decides to go across the border into Mexico to ask the cartel if he can smuggle drugs for them. And they break his arm and make him wear a cast made of cocaine and send him back across the border um, only to double cross him. So the end of the film becomes sort of a chase sequence for him to get home to his grandfather in order to save his life and fend off the cartel. And it's, I would describe it as um, a film noir. It's a little bit of a psychological thriller too because Javi's going through a lot of different emotions. He's in love. He's got compassion for his grandfather. Um, but he's also like, you know, tiptoeing around this cartel that he needs their help from. Um, and his, you know, his best friend, screwed him over too. So there's a lot going on there. Um, What strikes me about the film is it's a really polished film. It's your first feature length film. What, what gave you the confidence that you could pull that off? What gave me the confidence to pull it off? Um, First of all, before I forget, I'd like to mention that one of the critics, I think maybe the Austin Chronicle called it a Tex-Mex noir, which I thought was a pretty cool description of the film. Um, What made me think, I could pull it off. I guess in order to be a filmmaker or a director, you have to have some sense of confidence or belief in yourself, even in order to, to try it, in order to do it. You have to have maybe an inflated sense of ego or at least a healthy ego. So I think a lot of us um, feel like we can be filmmakers and we watch movies and we think we can do that. And, you know, some of us try. But I didn't do this at a very you know, young age, I, I, in my early twenties, right after film school, when I graduated, I really didn't feel like I could make a film. 
um, which is why I started working as a cinematographer. I didn't feel like I had the voice or the perspective to direct a, a film of meaning. And then only later at, at, at the end of my 20s did I, I start to feel like maybe I could do this and, you know, realize my childhood dream of directing a film. So that's did it feel natural to you on set? Were you like, this is what I was meant, I was meant to do? Yeah, it does feel natural. I mean, it, it really, to be honest, it felt natural when I did it in, in high school. You know, um, the things I lacked in high school were not vision. I always was, haven't been able to see the film in my head and see what I want. Um, w- the things that I had to learn were how to communicate, which was the most important. How to communicate to people um, who all have different communication styles you know you're gonna have a crew you know a bunch of crew members but they all think differently and they all need to be communicated to differently and actors there's no one way to direct actors I think every actor is different depending on who they are as a person and maybe their training or their background so you have to direct actors in different ways and these are things I've learned over the years working in corporate videos and commercials and also being a cinematographer on other filmmakers, feature films and short films. I've, I've been the DP on, I had been the DP on four indie features before I did Tejano. So I had a lot of, I learned from a lot of other directors. Either I learned what they did right or I learned what they did wrong. And so I was able to take years of experience and have the confidence that I could put all that experience together and, and direct this film. And I felt very good about it. How do you manage egos on set? Well, um, I, it can be it can be difficult to manage egos on set. Um, you know, my own probably the most difficult to manage. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes it can get in the way. But uh, no, I, I think that Tejano was made with a very small cast and crew, and there wasn't a lot of ego. To be honest, um, we were all in it together. We had all agreed to do it for. You know, I was obviously not making any money, but my crew and cast were doing it for way less money than they're worth, um, even though everybody got paid a little bit of money. Um, but there, no, there was not a lot of great ego problems on our set. It's just, yeah, I think it was it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was the budget for the film, and how did explain the fundraising process? Um, the budget on the film was fifty five thousand dollars production. And then with post-production, it probably reached, my accounting is not great, about $100,000. That includes marketing fees, traveling to film festivals, submitting it to film festivals, and some paid advertising on Facebook promoting it. Um, So a very low budget, extremely low. And we got it in the can for $55,000. The fundraising is sort of a long story, but, you know, to be brief, uh, I ended up paying for quite a bit of the film myself. My mom gave me $10,000 and I raised $10,000 on an Indiegogo campaign just before the film was made. Um, so I ended up paying for the rest out of pocket and that savings savings. I've, so what I used, you know, I started out in this business with a Canon 7D that I bought with all my money in 2000, I don't know, nine, 2010 or whatever it came out. And I took that Canon 7D and I turned it into a red and I turned it into a light kid. And, you know, I I built a a small business out of it. And I've used corporate video here in Austin and commercials here in Austin 
as a sort of a patron. And I've taken a lot of the money that I've made doing corporate videos for companies and I've saved it and I've invested it in my film. Got so it. that's how I made the film. Okay. Um, it's interesting. You said your mom gave you $10,000 when my brother was fundraising for his film, um, seven E bunch of family members gave him some money and we told him on, I think it was a Christmas present. And, um, I remember calling him, he was in upstate New York on Christmas and, uh, he had just found out that I had given him some money along with other family members of the film. And, um, he, you know, he got choked up and it was really emotional for him. Um, cause there's this huge labor of love, you know, behind the scenes, no one even realized how much he'd put into it. And for him to get the support from family got super emotional. And then I had a similar feeling and I haven't told anyone this when we launched third and Lamar two weeks ago, the first person to subscribe was my dad. And, um, you know, I saw the email come through new subscriber and I saw the name and, uh, you know, I got choked up, had to go upstairs. My wife Celeste didn't even see me. And, um, and, you know, I don't even know if my dad knows how much it meant to me, but, uh, describe getting that $10,000 from your mom and what that moment was like. Well, I don't think it, I don't think the moment itself weighed on, weighed on me very heavily. I was, I was about to make the film. Everything was moving so fast, but definitely years later, um, when the movie was finally finished, finally come out, we, we took a few years in, in post-production to make the film because I was paying for it right out of pocket. So I was working and paying for it and it was a slow process before we released it. And there was a moment, you know, my parents made it to every screening pretty much of the film. They came to every screening in different cities and they were always there. They've seen the movie probably more times than I have, you know, and they always enjoy it. And I know it means a lot because my dad is notorious. He falls asleep in any movie. He'll go to the theater and it could be the loudest Michael Bay movie and he'll be asleep. But he's never fallen asleep in Tejano. And that means a lot. That's so cool. Uh, even the scenes, you know, the gory scenes, the shootout scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know what type of genres of films your parents enjoy, but were they like, oh, that's a little too bloody for me? Or they actually like, like that too? No, they, they really don't like gory movies and they don't like cursing. I mean, I think they prefer Christian films, to be honest, but, um, but they love Tejano. Uh, it's, you, you, you put it right. I mean, it's, it's about the people, okay? I didn't make Tejano. My family made Tejano. My friends made Tejano. The cast and crew, everyone else made Tejano. This movie could not have been made without all of the help that I got. I mean... I stayed at my parents' house for two months in the Valley to make the film. Um, They let actors stay there. It was a center of operations. Uh, Another family friend from growing up, one of my best friends growing up, Calvin Ballinger, his parents opened up their house and they housed the entire crew. Every crew member had a room or shared a room in the house. And that was our, another home base. And that was all free. You know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have, paid for that. It just was going to be out of the budget. Yeah. Um, all the locations, most of the locations were free, um, including the international bridge to Mexico. We had a scene, a sequence shot on a real working bridge and every producer I talked to about producing the film said it was going to be impossible. I was going to have to build a bridge. I was going to have to use another bridge somewhere. And 
we just asked around and it turns out that I went to middle school and elementary school with a girl whose family owns and operates that bridge privately. And so just a few phone calls and we were given permission by U.S. Customs to go film on the, on the working bridge. So like the scene... For free. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and they detoured traffic and stuff so you guys could... No, it was open. So we oh. had to kind of shoot around uh, the people. We were shooting on the place where people walk across. We weren't doing anything in cars. And so we were shooting on the American side, walking to Mexico on the, in the sidewalk. And I would have these kind of narrow... Um, windows to film when there were no people. And we also had like our, some, you know, some assistants. We didn't have any assistants on the film. We had some crew members uh, like sort of holding up traffic, just kind of like maybe tying their shoe or getting in the way. So, so waves of people wouldn't come through so I could have enough time to film little sequences here and there. That's cool. What about the back office where Javi's taken in the film? Was that an actual like border patrol office or is that totally separate? So we had all these scenes um, in a U.S. Customs agent office, and there was no way we could actually like shut down a customs agent office and, and film in there. I didn't even try asking, to be honest. And I just brainstormed like, what looks like just a border checkpoint? And then I remembered my high school. And I, I called up the principal and I said, hey, listen, my name's David Blue Garcia. Uh, went there, graduate, alumni, 2003, Harlingen Cardinal. I want to make a movie. Can I use your locations in your high school? And they were like, yeah, come on over. So they, they invited me over when we walked through, they showed us all the rooms that were available to us. And I just, there was a, like a hallway outside of the gymnasium and it was just cinder block, oh, cinder block hallway with white paint. And it had some like bulletin boards and some vending machines. And I thought this looks exactly like a customs cross uh, checkpoint. We just got to remove the vending machines, put up some American flags here and there and put up some stanchions. And in a pre I think we had a picture of Obama or something on the wall, uh, some really s subtle art design and it passed. I mean, I had border, I had border agents, border patrol agents asking me what facility I shot in. That's how realistic it looked to them. That's yeah. great. Yeah. What? So I'm going to ask you about a few specific scenes that I really liked. Um, there's a scene where Javi tells Duke that his grandfather taught him to shoot. And then he shoots a beer can off of Duke's car and the beer can blows up and Duke gets all pissed. How did you set that scene up? Cause I know Javi didn't actually shoot the beer can, but like explain that sequence. Yeah. So, um, what I really wanted to have, you know, to happen in that shot, I think the best in kind of cinematography and filmmaking is when, um, things kind of happen in the same shot. You know, Spielberg does it a lot where you start on one thing and you end on the, another thing, but there's no cut. It's, it's all happening in one shot. It makes it feel a little bit more real. Um, so I wanted to see our main character, Javi, in the foreground aiming at the beer can on the, on the car and shooting it. And I wanted to see the, the can explode in the same frame. And, you know, there's a way to do it with visual effects. You can, like, motion track... Um, a green uh, a green screened can on top of the car and then have it explode off or whatever. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but we're we're in South Texas, okay? So we're gonna do it the South Texas way. So we put a beer can on the car, and we had our our actor with a, a, a blank, okay? He he's got a revolver that shoots blanks, and we had our gun safety guy 
off to the side of the car with a 22 rifle shooting at an off angle away from every, we're in the country, so there's nobody out there. So he actually shot the can at the same time that our actor shot the blank. Did he have like a infrared tracker? Cause like that, even with a 22 rifle, I don't know how far he was away, but that's hard. He's just a good shoot shot. He was about five. I mean, he was about as far as me and you on this table. Okay. From the, so that the, wasn't that difficult because no, it, it looked like the, it there was, was nobody around. It was probably about 10 feet. And if you look at the shot, he's in the shot. So I kind of hid him behind the actor, but my actor moved a little bit and revealed him. Oh, okay. So you can see him through the smoke of the fire. You can see him very briefly. Nice just little Easter man, egg for just, people to look for. Just a man shooting uh, <laughs> a gun. I don't, you know, I don't think this is uh, you know, what you normally do in a movie, but that's the way we did yeah. it. Yeah. Speaking of guns, the shootout scene at the end was pretty epic. Explain all the choreography that went into that scene. Yeah, the, uh, so the final action sequences um, were all pre-visualized. All the choreography was done in my head years before. You know, I'd been, I'd, I'd been sitting on the script for a couple of years trying to get someone to fund the movie. Couldn't find anyone. Wasn't really trying that hard, to be honest. But throughout all that time, I was storyboarding the film. And that was part of my process because I, wanted, I didn't want to show up on set and not know what to do. So by storyboarding, it forces you to at least think through what's going to be happening on screen, even if you don't use it. You still have some kind of plan um, rather than getting to the location and just trying to figure it out on a whim. So, um, yeah, the, all of that was completely storyboarded frame, pretty much frame by frame with very little improvisation beyond what I had envisioned before. Yeah. The, um, I thought the coolest part was Javi on top of the roof, sort of straddling the roof and, you know, angling in a way where people couldn't necessarily get him if they're right under the house. Um, so that was really well executed. Uh, the ending. It's, it's based on, I mean, I, uh, Kyle, I think came up with that concept, but it's funny that he did because I also used to play like guns with my neighbors, you know, when I was a kid and, something we loved to do was get on the roof and other guys would be attacking from below. And so it was really like, you know, choreographing that scene was just like playing guns as a kid, you know? Yeah. Cool. Uh, the ending, I think I halfway expected the, um, Javi to drive off into the sunset with his girlfriend, uh, to San Antonio, the place where they had envisioned going together. The movie doesn't end that way off. You know, earlier you said, Initially, it was going to end that way, but when you were filming, you were depressed and you decided to change that. So talk to me about your decision to change the ending and then like, what, how, long, how long were you depressed for? What was that all about too? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've struggled with depression at times, but beyond that, I, I think I just wanted to, you know, subvert the, the typical Hollywood ending. And, and that's what we had originally written and that's kind of how the film, the film followed that sort of arc. But I just wanted to do something a little bit different, especially since this wasn't a Hollywood film and no one was telling me what to do. I was, I was the final say. So I thought, well, why don't I do something a little different? And that's, and that's the ending I chose. The character doesn't really resolve that many of his issues in the film and it's sort of open-ended and he loses, he loses people who are very close to him 
and it's all his all his fault. So it's a very uh, it's a very dark, cynical ending. Yeah, um, but he, he in a way he becomes closer to his grandfather and becomes his grandfather, at least visually in that final shot. Yeah, and the song that plays at the end. I mean, I think that's the first song, Spanish song I learned when I took Spanish classes in like elementary school. So it's but it's like sung in a very different way. It's almost like um, the song "Hurt" when it's sung by Johnny Cash. It was like that kind. It kind of remind remind me of that. Um, did you select that song, or did somebody suggest that you use that song in the film? So, I mean, like I said, this movie was made by everybody who helped with the film. I mean, there are the cast and crew. Everyone has an idea in this movie. I mean, we had a great script starting to start off with, really entertaining. But everyone else added all these little ideas, and that's what makes the movie feel more lived in. And that idea came from our actor, Hector Uribe, who played Arturo, the grandfather. And he thought that maybe, you know, this he should be singing a song in one of the in one of the scenes. And he chose to sing Cielito Lindo, which is a classic Mexican song, which is also in the public domain, so we knew it would be safe. And then my my sound recordist, Paul Tui, had the idea to actually go in a car with the actor and get a really clean recording of it on set, thinking that, you know, I'm not going to have time to do this later in post. Um, so they went and did that. I said, yeah, I said, go for it. Go record whatever. Yeah, I don't care. And I'm off filming cows or whatever. And um, we're, we're in the edit and we, we have this beautiful rendition of the song by our actor, Cielito Lindo. And then... So I incorporated, I incorporated that into the edit and made it sort of a theme and a motif. It wasn't there before. And, and then when I was working with the sound designer, he had a couple of ideas and he, he tied the, the song more into the film at various places and made it even more of a motif. And then he wrote music to go with it. So, so it all came together. It all came together. What's your biggest regret from the film? I think my biggest regret from the film is not finishing it faster. Um, I had a little bit of postpartum depression or PTSD when I finished the movie, when I finished directing the movie. It was so, it was so stressful to be both like the producer, the director, and the cinematographer. And having everything come through me, it was just so much work for like three or four months leading up to the film and then shooting it that when I came out of it, I just didn't want anything to do with the movie. And I had an editor lined up who's my co-producer Shiraz Jaffrey. And I didn't even give him the hard drives. I just kept delaying it, delaying it, delaying it three or four months. I didn't even want to see the footage. And I finally gave it to him. I was like, all right, we should start editing this movie. And I just gave him the footage and kind of forgot about it. But that that kind of mentality, I don't think, was healthy. Because was it was it like anxiety from like, man, I put so much work into this for three months. If I find something wrong, like I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of of seeing the footage and it just not being a movie, you know. And even though I could see it in my head and I knew we had it, I just doubted myself and I I didn't want to finish it. And it it took we we finished shooting in. December of 2015, just before Christmas. And we didn't release the film until 2018 at the Dallas International Film Festival. So it took sh- short of three years to, to finish the film. But I should, what I should have done is I should have had a plan. 
in place to start. I honestly, I would have started editing on set. I would have had the editor there putting together the dailies and putting together the assembly so that by the end of the shooting, we had an assembled cut of the film. And then I should have gone straight into editing. I should have just done it all, but I was afraid. I was afraid to, I was also afraid to be out of work for that long. I thought that, um, if I took six months off to make my film, I wouldn't have any clients left when I got back to Austin. Yep. So that's why I started working right away. When you got done with the film. When yeah. I got done with the film, I was on set and doing corporate videos and commercials immediately, you know? Yeah. Let's get into the business side of the film. Um, did you, when you finished the actual film, you went on the festival circuit. Did you, and I, I imagine the end goal of submitting your film to festivals is big distributors will see it and then pay for it to distribute it and then you can make some money that way. Um, but you can also hire an agent to shop it around. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you do both approaches in parallel or did you just do the festival circuit? Well, I, I kind of just wanted, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I wanted to do the festival circuit to, to experience it. I haven't done a lot of film festivals. I know a lot of filmmakers go to festivals constantly. They see new films. They have that experience. I don't really do that. And so I wanted to, I wanted to go and I wanted to see what it's like. I wanted to talk about the film. I just wanted to have that experience. Um, but none of the festivals that we were accepted into are really known for having any film business at them. There weren't a lot of, I don't think there were any distributors at any of the festivals. It's, it's just more about sharing the movie um, and seeing what happens. Before we premiered the film at the Dallas International Film Festival, I had um, a friend of mine who just called me a moment ago, had seen my movie and suggested I talk to a guy in LA who specializes in Latino films. And he's also from South Texas. So I sent him an email, showed him the trailer and um, sent him the, the link to the film. He watched it, he liked it. And he got on a call with me and a, a Latino film distributor specializing in Spanish language content and he he offered to take the film at that at that point. What does what does that mean? Take the film? Like he was going to give. Well, I you didn't say buy the film because there was no money exchanged. Um, you you sell the rights to a distributor to represent the film in film sales, and then there's a percentage of profit share based on whether you sell the TV, VOD, etc. And that's okay. all in the contract. But so it was I like was an agent <clears throat> who was shopping the film for you. And is a distributor. As a distributor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a sales agent would get you a distributor. Yeah. A sales agent would take a fee, but this was just a distributor. So cut out the, the middleman. Cut out the middleman. And oh. he has his own fee based on the sale. Okay. Um, Did you, and you obviously and, felt comfortable with the fee. Why, why but did, I didn't, it, well, there's no fee. Well, the rev share when he does. Yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I had no other choice anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to negotiate and I had no grounds to negotiate at all. Uh, he was like, no, this, this is my fee here. Um, but I actually didn't sign with him until a few months later. Not because I didn't want to, I, I I'm just, I was just dragging my feet on it, you know, in the same way that I drug the feet on, on finishing the movie. I just, I wanted to take it to film festivals and I wanted to have that experience. And then I was like, Oh, I have to sell this movie too. So I, called him up and luckily he still wanted to do it. So yeah. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what was the rev share? 
I don't remember off the top of my head, but for the TV deal, it's 70-30 for me. Yep. So I, I get 70% of the profits from the sale to TV um, and streaming, which was HBO. We did make a sale to HBO yeah. earlier this year. And so he's already paid me for, for that. Where are all the places people can watch the movie right now besides HBO? Yeah, we released it on all digital platforms, kind of a standard sort of deal. So it's available on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube. Um, I don't, I can't, iTunes. Yep. All of those kind of standard films, uh, film sites. And then HBO as well. If you're a member, you can stream it right now Okay. on HBO. And it was also playing on HBO channels, HBO Latino channels on TV for quite a few weeks. Okay. Um, when this agent was bringing the film around to HBO, let's say, or Amazon or whoever, Netflix, um, was he bringing every deal to you to be like, hey, here are the terms. Like this, I think this is good. And were you providing feedback or were you totally hands off in that process? He did a really good job of kind of keeping me abreast of, of everything he was doing. Um, I mean, I don't think it was really up to me. I think he could sell it to whoever he wanted because that's the terms of the contract. He represented the film. Um, but he would tell me, hey, I got Sony looking at it. Um, they're looking at paying 100000 for it. Oh, sorry. Nope, they're not going to go. They're not going to do it. So there was a couple of, you know, like, got my hopes up and then, oh, it didn't work. Got my hopes up. Oh, it didn't work. But finally, HBO, you know, made the deal. So that was really exciting. But the thing is, the contract wasn't signed for six months. He said, I made the deal with HBO. And then I kept asking, have they signed the contract? Have they signed the contract? Because I didn't want to tell anyone until it was inked. Yeah. I think I told Kyle. I was like, Kyle, I want to tell you something. We <laughs> sold the movie to HBO, but you can't say anything for four months. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't want to, I don't want to mess it up. Yep. Um, so yeah, that was a little bit nerve wracking. What explain the feeling when you found out it was signed? I mean, I think I just shouted for joy very briefly, but then completely went back to normal. I mean, it was just, it took too long. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like killed the joy. of It, it. just killed the joy. It wasn't like, Hey, you sold the movie. Yeah. Woo-hoo, let's celebrate. It was just, I had to hold it in as a secret for so long. Yeah. Um, but it felt really good to finally tell the actors. Yep. The actors who put, we made this film in 2015. Some of them aren't even acting anymore. Yeah. You know? And they're not, they're out of the business, but I wanted to say, look at all the hard work, look at the good work you did. And now it's recognized and, and, and they and were had, so happy and they got, are they getting a piece of those proceeds too? Or is that like a separate thing? Well, um, some of the actors, I gave them a, a very, very small percentage of, of proceeds, but it's determined on me, um, collecting my initial funds back. Yep. So, which I have not, yeah. fortunately. Got it. So, I, I'm, you know, I mean, still, I'm still underwater on the movie. Yeah, that was my or next question. You call it. Yeah, I mean, I've made a, a significant portion of probably production back. I probably maybe matched what I produced the film for, what I shot the movie for. But with all the post costs, I'm not. I'm still not there. Yeah, yeah. There's still time. I mean, I mean, there's still time, and there royalties, after, right? Well, after the HBO deal, we can make more deals. So yeah, HBO probably would not renew it, but we could sell it to Stars, Showtime. Mm-hmm. Um, El Rey for modest sums of film, of money. Yep. And I, I have never sold the foreign rights of the film either. That's something definitely that can still be sold. Yeah. So, okay. 
What doors have opened for you because of this film? Have other people approached you like, hey, direct this script or screenplay or like, has anyone like big investor been like, we want to back you on your next project? Yeah, unfortunately, none of that happened. I mean, we all have dreams of, of making something and then Hollywood calls and, and you've, they ask what's next and then you're off, you're off to the races um, having a career. But that didn't really happen. Um, not to say it's a bad thing, um, but I, I do have, it has opened the doors in the sense that um, I've had a lot of people in Hollywood see it. I have a lot of managers and agents who know me now and it's sort of opened the door. I have my foot in the door, you know, um, I've <laughs> this one very cynical manager in LA watched the film or maybe he didn't watch the whole thing, but he called it Tijano, by the way, <laughs> this is Jewish guy He's saying, ah, Tijano, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's, uh, it's really your calling card film. Maybe it's a stepping stone to a stepping stone is what he told me. So <laughs> I'm sure you felt great. I felt great about that, but I, I like, I mean, I, it's fine. It's fine hearing, you know, the realistic perspectives, but it's, it's a, it's one of those small movies that gets you to a bigger movie. Right. And by a bigger movie, I mean like a million dollar budget or something like that. Yeah. Which is still tiny in the grand scheme, which of is things. still tiny in the grand scheme of things. Right now I'm working with a manager in Los Angeles, um, who represents talent from diverse backgrounds and they're confident that they can get me another project. So yep. in that way, it's helped me a lot. Got it. Are you, do you ever feel pressure to move to LA? Do you feel like that would accelerate your career? I mean, you gave Kyle the advice. He's there. Is that the first step? Like Kyle, how's it going for you? <laughs> he's, he's doing well. Yeah. You're like, All right, I'm joining you. Well, I mean, I think I'm a bit conservative and that's why I've stayed in Austin, um, closer to family and closer to the business relations that I've made here. Um, I haven't felt pressure to move to LA. I think what, what, that it will end up looking like for me is still doing the same thing I'm doing and spending more money. Um, and so I, I think I, I'm able to make those connections to LA from here. And mm -hmm. I think I've been doing that. Um, and out now I have representation in LA to represent me there. So, and as, as far as the pandemic goes, people are more open to doing zoom calls and, and talking on the phone rather than doing in-person meetings. So that'll help me as well. Yeah. Um, but I would like to move to LA one day. I would like to just have a reason to be there though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and not, I don't want to go there and make corporate video like I do here. Sure. You know, I just want to go there and make movies if I'm, if they're calling me to. Sure. Um, have you read the reviews to Tejano? I spent some time last night looking at like Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb and, um, I'm curious as the director, if, if you look at that and if you do, do you put any weight on that? Um, I, I'm always interested in, I'm very collaborative, you know, so I kind of made the film with a lot of people and I, I heard a lot of people's opinions about things and I, I incorporated some of them and I did a lot of test screenings for the film. So when I was editing the movie, I did about 10 test screenings at my house where I would invite friends and people who weren't even filmmakers to come and watch the movie and just, I did these feedback sessions and then I just kind of figured out what was not working for them and and, and then I would just keep re-editing and re-editing re until finally no one really had anything to say anymore. And that was kind of my way of thinking, okay, well, I've, I've made it the best it can be, you know, yeah. and, I, and I need to finish. Um, and so I, I do appreciate people's opinions. And I, I've read, a lot, I've read, probably read all the reviews, even the audience reviews. There aren't that many. Um, 
And I could see, you know, when people are just being supportive and then I can see people when people don't know who I am and those are the most raw, you know? And so there's definitely some negative reviews out there, um, which, which is fine. Yeah. I, I know the movie is not for everyone and I don't expect everyone to, to respond to it. Like it's yeah. the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I think, um, you know, Tony Stolfa, the other, uh, co-founder, Thurn Lamar and Heather, Tony's right here. But, uh, when we debuted the originals episode of the National Bureau, which um, that's our the originals is our documentary series, uh, I showed it to my mother-in-law, and you know I had to keep in mind that she's not necessarily the audience that we're going for, and to keep that in mind, and mm. and just yeah, you have to have thick skin about things, and if you go in knowing that what you're doing isn't for everyone, um, then. I think you can brush things off easier. Yeah. I mean, but I, I get a lot of reviews that aren't written online. They're just people like random people on Instagram who I don't know that just message me and say tight movie, bro. You know, just like really dug it. I mean, that, that really means a lot. I mean, I got, I get phone calls from people. I got a phone call from some octogenarian, you know, in Florida who wants me to make a film about his life story as a Puerto Rican cop in, in New York city in the seventies. And he knew like Frank Serpico and stuff like that. And I'm just like listening to these people. I'm just talking, you know, I'm talking to these people on the phone cause I saw my movie on HBO or whatever. And it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, I had one guy message me on, on Facebook that he was working with the Wu Tang clan last summer and he watched the movie with them and old dirty bastard, like watched most of it and dug it. <laughs> ODB loves it. Yeah, ODB loves it. So it's like, I mean, it's crazy how many people are able to see something once it's online. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm that guy. I was watching this um, branded film that a director put together for Square, like the payment processor. And um, it was about this guy. Um, I think it's called, the movie or the little short film is called Yasin Falafel. Mm-hmm. And it's about a guy who immigrated, I think, from Syria and launched his own falafel food truck in Tennessee mm-hmm. and he, you know, it's not directly about square, but he used square and square funded it. But I, I loved the film and I sent a message to Mo gorgeous Stanley, I think is the director's name. And he responded pretty quickly and he was like, how did you hear about this film? It'd been out for a couple of years. I don't even know how I found it. I think Vimeo had like posted it or something, but um, I told him how I found it. And I was like, yeah, you know, if you're ever in Austin, it'd be cool to catch up and grab a coffee. And that's where the conversation ended. I think he'd probably gotten hit up by so many people who liked liked it. And then they wanted to like mm. form a relationship that he was probably like, nah, I can't do that anymore. But it didn't hurt my feelings. I thought it was kind of like kind of funny. But so I understand people hitting you up on Instagram and you being like, oh, hey. I mean, it's really cool. Yeah. I, and uh Sometimes it is a little bit like too much. You know, I've had also people send me, you know, their short, their their scripts and I just don't, I'm not a producer, you know, I I can't, I can't read your script just because you're sending to me and I don't know you, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's been some stuff like that where I've had to kind of ghost on people or say thank you very much and, and just leave. Yeah. Fade to black. But I mean, that's something that I always think about, you know, as filmmakers, we, we talk about supporting other filmmakers all the time, supporting artists. And honestly, we don't all have the ability to financially do that all the time. We can't all donate to everybody's Indiegogo and Kickstarter. But one of the best things you can do is just leave an, uh, a supportive comment. 
on their YouTube page. Yep. Send them a personal message. Send them an email. I just got an email today from a local filmmaker, Dan Brown, saying he watched Tejano and and really enjoyed it and appreciated what I did. Yeah. And that means a lot. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the film business. Um, there's so many subscription video on demand services right now. There's, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously Netflix, <clears throat> Amazon, Quibi, um, I think NBC's launching Peacock. There's Hulu, um, you know, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus. You'd think from the outside looking in, you'd think this is the greatest time to be a content creator in the history of the world. There's so many places that are funding content, buying content that there's the opportunity has to be plentiful. Uh, is that the reality? Is that how you feel? I mean, I haven't personally experienced the opportunity yet. Um, so from my limited experience, I don't see any more opportunity than there was before, but from what I hear, yeah, there is, there's a lot more creative and narrative content being made in Hollywood, um, for these, all these platforms. And I'm always shocked when I log on and I see all these like high quality TV shows that are just released in one big lump on Netflix. And it's 10 episodes that are so much money, you know, going into it. There's like these period pieces and things and they're really good. And I always think who has time to watch all this stuff? Where's all this coming from? You know? So there must be opportunity. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great thing. But so, but you, when you speak to friends who are other filmmakers, they're like, yeah, this is, they feel the same way. Like, or is it, yeah, I, I just, from my perspective, I, my brother's in film mm -hmm. in New York. It's obviously a different time now because pr most productions are shut yeah, down. Yeah, when we're talking about it, I don't think we're talking about current yeah. pandemic times. I think we're just talking about in general, in general normal yeah, yeah. times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, there's a lot of stuff being filmed there, but I don't know if it's any different than five, 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, I think there is time now because people are stuck at home to watch all that new content, but mm -hmm. it'll be interesting what it looks like 12 months from now. Um, how many of those are still, how many of those platforms still exist and then what are they filling their time with? Because there's no production happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's I, still a lot of films, uh, a, a glut of films I'm sure that are in post-production being finished up and about to be released on the market and we won't see the real, the true gap until later. Yeah. Um, one thing I was reading about in the film industry is that um, I guess the, the Universal released Trolls World Tour direct to VOD. It pissed off AMC. AMC is not going to distribute any Universal films anymore. Do you think that exclusive theatrical runs are going to cease to exist? Or how do you see that happen, You know that changing in the future? I mean, this is getting into... You know, I, speculation that I'm not even really that educated on, but I have read a little bit about it and a, a couple of authors have predicted certain things that are the future of the industry. Um, one of which that stuck with me was that we might start seeing some of these theatrical chains being purchased by the bigger powers um, like Disney or Amazon um, or Apple and and then they'll, they're, they're going to make these theaters into more of an experiential thing. So you might go to a Disney-owned theater and watch Disney movies, but there's way more to it than that. Maybe there's a mini theme park ride in it. There's a Disney store. There's like a cafeteria, a place to hang out. The whole thing is going to be an experience 
kind of like the Alamo Draft House has here in Austin has the highball. They have bowling and dancing and all these other things. You know, maybe the theaters will start start to go in that direction because that's something that you can offer. Um, the social aspect is what you offer at a theater rather than, you know, watching a movie at home. Yep. Um, yeah, that could be interesting. I think Alamo's kind of proven out that if you have a premium experience, people will pay more for it too. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I love going to the Alamo more so than just going to a normal movie theater. And the only reason I would go to a normal movie theater is if I couldn't get into the Alamo. And, and honestly, you can go see like a movie middle of the week and just be the only one in the theater at an AMC sometimes. Yeah. Good point. Um, for people who don't know, what's the film business like in Austin? I mean, there's obviously Linklater and Robert Rodriguez are here. South by Southwest Film has given the city um, a bunch of publicity. Is this a great place to be a filmmaker, or do you still think it's like a second tier place compared to um, bigger markets, especially on the East and West Coast? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a great place to be a filmmaker. Um, I'll just say that. I, I think it's a place to be a filmmaker. Um, I think, let's see. What am I trying to say? I think the film business is still in Los Angeles and it's not here. And the, the stuff that's being produced here or, or funded here is, is very small stuff and very, very little of it makes a big impact. We, we have a lot of really talented filmmakers in Austin and we've seen them be successful and Sundance and Tribeca and all sorts of film festivals. And some of them have made a big name for themselves but then they've also moved to Los Angeles. I mean, we had Kat Candler here for a while. And then after the success of one of her first features, um, she moved to Los Angeles and has had a great career directing television out there. Um, so a lot of people just move away. I It's almost like if you reach a certain point, you Kyle Bogart and move off to LA, you know, so we can't, we can't all be Kyle Bogart, but this is a, Austin is an incubator. You know what I mean? So I think it's a good place to be it used to be a good place to be, to practice your skills and to maybe save up a little money before you move somewhere else to make films. But I think it's very expensive now. I don't think Austin is a good city anymore for artists. I think in order to be here, you have to be super competitive and you have to be a business person more so than an artist. And I, I spend more of my time making corporate films than, than films. So, and you're talking about the cost of living here. Cost of living. Up. The cost of living went up. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like that's cor a, correlating with like the character of Austin too? Yeah. They, I think the character has changed. I've been here 17 years now since college. And I mean, even 17 years ago, you talk to somebody who was here in the nineties or the eighties or the seventies. I mean, it's changed immensely, but even seven, 17 years, it's become more and more and more corporate than it was. Yep. And it's, it's like, you know, some people describe it as a mini Silicon Valley. I mean, you could see it in the real estate prices. Yep. The cost of living has really gone up. So it's it's not a good incubator for artists anymore. If you want to be an artist, maybe you should live in a small town outside of Austin or a small town outside of a big city and, and work on your art, live cheap, cheap rent. Because you don't need to be in the middle of the business to become an artist. You do all that work before. And then you'd go to the business and say, here's who I am. Here's what I have to offer. Mm -hmm. And then you can move to Los Angeles. Yeah. That's just, that's been my theory, right? Because if I, if I had gone to LA 
in, in my early twenties, maybe I would, you know, maybe I would have been successful, but maybe I wouldn't have been, Mm -hmm. maybe I would be like some of the people I know who went there and didn't do anything, you know? So, yeah. Are you thinking about leaving Austin, not to go to LA right now, but like to live in that small town? I mean, that would be smart. I would save, I would save a lot more money. Um, but I mean, Austin has treated me well and I feel uh, comfortable living here. I've got a, I don't pay too much and you know, my mortgage is not too high. I don't think it's beyond my means. Uh, I live in a small, small apartment centrally. And so, uh, I feel comfortable about it. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I love, I get to travel for my, I get to travel for my job quite often. Um, like Tony Stolfa, I'm sure he, he probably travels way more than me, but we get to go to, you know, really cool places. We could shoot really cool things. So, I mean, I get that experience of being elsewhere often, so I don't really miss it. You yep. know? So let's talk about that. Your, your commercial film business, which has paid the bills for you. Um, the production you work for the production work you do for big companies, corporations, things like that. You went straight from filming Tejano to go, getting right back into work. Um, my question was going to be, you know, was it hard to go back to that type of work after doing something you, you had 100% creative control over? I mean, that's a really astute question because yes, it was. I mean, it's, well, it was hard getting into Tejano because I'm so used to working for clients and collaborating with agencies, clients, you know, um, companies that have ideas. And as a director DP, you're often executing other people's ideas and just trying to do your best to do it. Um, but on Tejano, there was nobody telling me what to do. And it was my word was the, the final say. So it was all on me. And that was a little bit nerve wracking. I mean, I think the first couple of days shooting, I, I would operate the camera. And so I would, I'd be filming and I'm used to like looking over my shoulder to, to see someone's reaction, whether they liked it or not. And I would look over and nobody would give me a thumbs up. I was just there alone. And then I'd just say, okay, I got it. Um, and then I, you know, going back to, I, but I like, I like working on commercials and corporate stuff. And I, I like collaborating with people, especially when they're passionate about what they want. Um, and so I don't need to be the final say at all times. Yeah. Does the work come to you? How have you built that business for yourself? Is it all reputation word of mouth based or have, have you been like knocking on doors for years? And Yeah, I was lucky and it's been 90% word of mouth for my entire career. I mean, it just kind of starts off small. Um, at the beginning, you're, you're kind of like reaching out to a few people here and there, you're getting turned down a lot, but then you just do one good job on something. Someone thinks of you and they give you a little job. You know, maybe you get $500 and you're working for a week or something like that, making a video and you do a good job and they're like, oh, this, this person's good. Let's put them on something else. Let's put them on something else. And then 10 years later, you've done all these things. And, um, I mean, I'll tell you a story. Um, I can, I can like point my finger at specific things that happened in my career that kind of elevated me. One of them was, I was kind of, I was an editor for a while in, uh, I don't know, 2009, um, I was doing a lot of editing work and I was editing for a local production company and they had me cut something, uh, with Lance Armstrong in it. I think it's before he was, you know, ostracized from the industry. He was still pretty famous. Mm -hmm. Um, not that he's not famous. And I uploaded the rough cut to my personal website 
um, and I sent it to the client to approve. And then they sent it to Lance Armstrong to approve. And he just tweeted, he liked it. So he just tweeted the thing on his Twitter and it went to my personal website where the video was hosted. I mean, he had hundreds of thousands of followers back then, maybe a million, I don't know. And so it crashed my website because I got so many hits that day. And what that did was it put my website at the top of Google search in Austin for cinematographers for years. And I was like the top dude for a long time. Since then, I'm, I think I'm on page two now because I haven't put much work into my SEO. But basically that made me so visible and that brought me a lot of work. And that's just a, such a random thing, you know? Was it ever more than just you or did you ever hire full-time people to join David Blue Garcia Productions? Or does it always like, on this project, I need to hire these people and that's just like a contract thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in the last couple of years, I, I used to work mostly as a cinematographer and a director and I would just get hired as a contractor and a, get a day rate. Um, and then I've produced a handful of videos over the years and more so in the last two or three years. I've had clients come to me directly with the budget and I run the whole thing through my company. Um, but I've never thought it wise to try and hire somebody full time because I, I just see this business as so up and down, so up and down. And I haven't wanted to to risk being responsible for somebody and for their livelihood too. Sure. You know, I, I just would rather be flexible and pay people, pay, pay contractors as the job requires. Yep. Um, are you worried about your livelihood with coronavirus and production or do you not get too anxious about that? No, I'm not worried about it. I'm not anxious. I mean, I've, um, I've worried in the past about losing work and not being able to work again, but there's always something and our culture is more and more tied to video and photo content. You know, we don't read as much anymore. We, we want to see everything through a video. Um, I, I can see it changing and I just need to be open to the change of what's happening. And I need to be open to the idea that maybe people won't pay as much eventually there are like kind of industry standard rates. And I've noticed just in my 10 years as a professional that they haven't changed that much, even though there's inflation and things cost more now, but the rates are kind of stagnant, you know, and that might actually continue. People, people can make video really high quality now um, for very cheap. So maybe those old rates were, that were based on older technologies that were extremely expensive maybe there's a reason they're not changing. Yep. Right. And there's so many people, so many talented people who are able to make high quality content now. I mean, uh, kind of the standard gaffer rate for a long time has been about five fifty a day, maybe six fifty on a big commercial. And that's been sort of the same for 10 years. And also when I was a, a camera operator, like in 2008, 2009, I would often get $500 a day to do basic things. And I've, I get called for that all the time still, even by some of these companies that should have kind of, you know, grown beyond that. It seems like they, they feel like they can only afford to pay sometimes $500 for a camera operator on something. And that seems surprising to me since it's such a, a technical job and, and, you know, it takes some, some knowing. I think the thing that's, more confusing now is the day rate for a 
cameraman or a camera person with their gear. You know what I mean? So maybe the rate is the same as it was 10 years ago, but they expect you to have way more gear. Now you have to throw in a $20,000 camera package, all your lenses, a tripod. They want you to have a gimbal. They want you to have a, a Mo, you know, a Movi gimbal or a Ronin. They want you to have a, a drone of some sort, you know, an easy rig. You yep. know, they ask you if, if they, if you have all these things and the rate is the same. You're just expected to have these things now. Yeah. But whereas before, and I, I've, I've worked with a lot of older people in the business who were working in the nineties and they're talking about how they used to get two or $3,000 a day back in the nineties, you know, because they were coming with these like $100,000 camera packages. Mm-hmm. And now people want to pay for an Ari Alexa camera package, you know, $500 a day with super speeds. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But you can rent it. You know, you can go to LA and rent an Ari Alexa camera package with super speed lenses for 500 bucks. And it doesn't seem right, you know, mm-hmm. because it costs $100,000. Yeah. Yeah, so I just don't understand this kind of idea that everything has to be way cheaper now. Yep. And it's something that as as freelancers, something we need to be conscious of to make, make sure that our rates are fair for everyone else too because what we work for um, contributes to that. So to, how to be competitive in that is is what I'm thinking about, you know, and part of it is my experience and being able to do things what I think is pretty efficiently. Um, Are you pretty discerning with the projects you do? Or have you ever turned down work because even though it was a good paycheck because you weren't feeling it? Yeah, I've turned down work a lot. I've turned a lot of work down. Some Sometimes I turn down work just because um, I feel like I'm not mentally there for it. Like either I'm burned out. I mean, you've probably burned out before, right? We've all burned out. And I don't want to burn out on a project. So I'll turn down some things sometimes to give myself a break, mm-hmm. even though I know I'm losing out on, on money. Um, but I want to do the best work that I can for a client. So, um, I try not to burn out. Yeah. You're working on another script now. Um, and you know, where are you at in that script and like where, when you feel burned out or you go through a spell of depression, like how do you get back into it? Um, even with Tejano, you said like you could, you didn't want to see it for a while. And then there was a period where you did like 10 screenings and Mm -hmm. you obviously didn't mind looking at it then. How did you get back to that, that place? I mean, I think it's, for me, it's just stubbornness and, you know, having to finish something that I started and not wanting to give up on it. I mean, I'm, I just have to finish things and I have to do the things I say I'm going to do, which is part of how Tejano got made is I told people I'm going to shoot it next year. And I kept telling them for a year that I was going to shoot it. And then I had to shoot it because I'm not a liar. And where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Do you, are you still doing some commercial projects to support the stuff you do on the film feature film side? Or do you want, have you set a goal for yourself? And by five, five years from now, all I want to be doing is feature films. Yeah. In five or 10 years, I would love to be in a position where I can just do feature films or television Um, or I like telling stories, you know, and I I don't mind working for brands. I mean, I quite like it often, but, uh, I would tell stories for brands too. The creative ones. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. But I I would like to not have to do 
corporate videos anymore. I think I could get it there, you know? So for people listening to this who want to see your work, find out more about you, where would they go? Yeah, if you know my name, David Blue Garcia, I'm pretty um, visible on Google. Thanks to Lance Armstrong and uh, www.davidbluegarcia.com or tejanomovie.com. Cool, man. Well, I really enjoyed the discussion. I appreciate you joining. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge.